The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning, church family. Good morning. So good to be here and to worship with you this morning. I don't know about you, but I love that, that new song that Caleb introduced to us this morning. And um, he told us a few weeks ago that we were going to sing it, start singing it. And so I looked it up. It was just written a few months ago. And it's the perfect song because when I start it, when I leave my garage, it ends like right as I'm about to get to church. So it's my perfect commuting song because it fills my, my nice short commute here to church. But I love it because it hits on this theme that I hope you're picking up on. And we're going to talk about a lot more today in, as we go through this series on the life of Abraham. That, that we're learning lessons not primarily about ourselves, but about God. About God who is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. The same God in Genesis. This, the same God that we worship today. You know, as a pastor, I get to have faith conversations with lots of different people. And most of those people are Christians. But I've, I've had a lot of time interacting as well with those who are new believers, who, who aren't believers or Christians. And one of the things that, I don't know if you've had conversations with, with people who have said this to you. But I've had this multiple times. People said, you know... I've looked at the Bible and it seems just like it's like two different gods. Like I look at the Old Testament and it seems like that's a God. And then I look at the New Testament and it seems so different. And I understand what they're saying. And like, if you do look just at very narrow parts of each, you can, you could get that. But when we look at the whole picture of scripture and the whole thing together, that it really is the one God, the true God, all pointing forward to the same thing. And this morning, as we dive into our our text this morning, we're going to look at three truths that run throughout all scripture. I'm going to see, especially in one of them, how clearly it is tied to this Old Testament truth in the book of Genesis, to what we have in Jesus that's talked about in the New Testament. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them? It's the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 14. And because I know that you had nothing going on last week, that all you thought about was where we left off the sermon and you're so excited to pick it right back up. I don't need, okay, no, no, you had stuff going on this week. So where we left off last week is Abraham, if you remember, Abram went after his nephew Lot, who had been taken captive. And he went and he rescued Lot and he saved them from from their being taken captive. And our story this morning picks right back up immediately upon that. Abram has just rescued Lot and is now headed back towards the land with him. And as we've talked about Abraham, and we've noticed this throughout, that Abram's story revolves around three main themes that God promised him in Genesis chapter 12. That would be land, offspring, and blessing. That he would have a land in which to live, that he would have offspring that was numerous descendants, and and that God would bless him. And each of these three themes is going to show up in the passages that we look at this morning. And so picking right back up on the way back from this battle, it says this in Genesis chapter 14, starting at verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Shedar Laomer, I don't know how you pronounce it that way, but if you have anything better, feel free to try, all right? And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, 
possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and let the share of the men who are with me, let Aner, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. And so the story that we have here as we start is, is really a story of Abram interacting with two kings, right? First, we're introduced to the king of Sodom, but before he talks, in walks this other king. His name is Melchizedek. Right? And Melchizedek's name literally means king of righteousness, if you were to divide his name in half in the language, right? So king of righteousness, and he is the king of Salem. Salem means peace. So we literally introduce this man. He is the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And we see that not only is he a king, but in verse 18, that he is a priest of God most high. He worships and is a priest of the same God of Abram, the God of scripture. And he shows up and he gives this blessing, right? He blesses Abram. This theme of blessing comes up in Abraham's life. He blesses him and he blesses God because of him. And in response, Abram gives him a tenth of all that he has. And Melchizedek is fascinating because he shows up here. He kind of comes out of nowhere, right? And he shows up. He's from God, God most high. He blesses him, and then he disappears from the story. He doesn't come up anywhere else in the book of Genesis. And you may seem like, well, that's kind of random. And we don't have time to dive into it today, but it's amazing because in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5 through 7, when it talks about the priesthood of Jesus and introducing what kind of priest that Jesus is, it says Jesus is a priest, and you know who he's a lot like? He's like Melchizedek. You're like, wait, what? Melchizedek? Yes, this Melchizedek that is only in these three verses here. And Jesus actually is a lot like Melchizedek in that he does not come from a specific lineage. We're not told of Melchizedek's family, that, that he shows up and is a priest. And so look at that in your own time. If you're fascinated by this study, I could easily preach a whole sermon on these three verses. You're like, really? Yes. Yes, really, I could, but we won't today because that's not the, the main point of the story. But Melchizedek shows up and blesses him. And then the king of Sodom speaks. And he, he makes this negotiation in verse 21. He's like, all right, how about this? Give me the people, right? Lot and all the other people from Sodom who Abram rescued. Give me the people and you can keep all the stuff. Now, the king makes this request, but here's the thing. He has no right to do so. Because by very nature of Abram going and being the conqueror and saving them, they are now his people. He has the right, the king of Sodom is making an illegitimate request. They belong to Abram because he is the one who has saved them. But what does he say? No, I don't want your people. I don't want your stuff. I don't want your thread. In verse 24 or 23, I don't want even a sandal strap that is yours. The sandal strap is down to like, in their time, it was the lowest minutia of something that someone could have. If you remember, this is picked up in the New Testament when John the Baptist, talking about his unworthiness, speaking of Jesus, says, I'm not even worthy, what, to tie the sandals, to tie the straps of his sandals. It's the smallest thing. This is Abram saying, I don't want your people. I don't want your money. I don't want the lint out of the pockets of your jeans. I don't want anything of yours. Keep it, keep it all. 
Now, why does Abram do this? Is, it, is he saying that it's wrong to keep gifts or to accept things from others? No, he's, he's not saying that at all. But for Abram, he is saying that his life is one of being blessed by God. And he wants to make sure that the credit is only ever given to God and not to others. And see, this first truth that we see here in this passage and throughout scripture is that the blessings of God are sufficient. The blessings of God are always sufficient for us. When Abram wanted to make sure that all of the credit went to God, he didn't want anyone to get confused lest anyone else could take any credit for what was going on in his life other than God. See, there are challenges. There are challenges that we face in each and every season of life, including challenges that we face in seasons of prosperity and where God is blessing our lives. And for so many of us, myself certainly included, but for so many of us, the challenges when we walk into seasons of blessing and prosperity, like how Abram finds himself right here with all the spoils of war, is that oftentimes in these seasons, we turn into self-sufficient people. That we look at ourselves and we think, I don't need anyone else. Is it not amazing that when something wrong goes on in your life, how quick you are to blame everyone else? right? It's your wife, it's your kids, it's your boss, it's the person who cut you off in traffic this morning. It's everybody else's fault, but the moment something goes right, whose fault is it that it went right? Oh, it's my fault. I'm the reason that everything goes right. This is just a natural human thing to blame others and accept all the credit when things go well. And this leads towards this attitude of self-sufficiency that we don't need anyone else or anything, including it can lead to the attitude of we don't need to depend upon God. So how do we cultivate a spirit of dependency on God and on what he has given us rather than a spirit of self-sufficiency on what we have or what we could earn? One of the ways to do that is to practice radical generosity, to practice radical generosity. Abram does this with both of these kings. Notice to Melchizedek, he gives him a tenth of everything. There was no expectation. There was no, this is what you need to do. Abram just does it. To Sodom, I want nothing. Take all of it. He expresses radical generosity to both of these men. I remember back when I was in college, it was one of those late night conversations that we had in the dorm rooms that you think are so significant when you're 19 years old. And you're like, why did we not sleep that much? We were up talking about silly things. And I remember there was one night in college, it was a group of us guys, by the way, all like training to go into ministry and be pastors. We were up late and a, and a guy walked in and he sat down and he was a friend and said, hey, what would you guys do? What would you do if someone gave you a thousand dollars? And we're like, we're college students. We've never had that much money in our lives. Like, I, don't, I would go buy groceries. Like, that's amazing. I would go out to eat somewhere other than McDonald's. Like, holy smokes, that is a, so much money, right? And so we all talked about it and he, he kept upping it. What, what about if it was $10,000, right? We're like, oh, I'd buy a really junky car, but then I could get around, right? Like, yeah, we start to think big. It's like, how about if it's $100,000, We'd be, oh, I'd pay off my student loans. I'd buy, I'd buy a brand new car. We, we can think of all this thing. And he kept going. What about if it was a million dollars? Well, then I would buy myself a house and I would do this. And he kept going. He said, what about if it was $10 million? And for the first time, someone, which includes me, was in the circle, was like, I would probably give some of it to church. And he said, why did it take $10 million for the thought to give someone else an unexpected blessing that you've had. 
It took that much money before our thoughts went towards how the things that we got could actually help someone besides a car, a house, what I want to actually think of someone else. I'll never forget, I was in a a small group several years ago, and we were studying through a book called The Treasure Principle, talking about a godly perspective on handling money. And he, and he asked this question, which I, I will never forget. He said, so often when we get an unexpected financial blessing, a bonus at work or, or a generous gift, we think that it's just a great thing, that God is just blessing us. He said, what if when we receive something like that, what if it's actually a test? What if God gives us those unexpected financial blessings to test us and say, what are you going to do with this now? You going to use this on yourself? Or are you going to think of someone else? Are you going to look somewhere else? Because I know for so many of us, myself included, our bent is in towards ourselves and not to think of how what God has blessed us with could impact and help others. Another way to cultivate a spirit of dependency rather than self-sufficiency is to practice thankfulness in our lives. To practice thankfulness in our lives. See, this attitude of self-sufficiency can creep in to every single area of our lives, including even our spiritual lives. That we can think to ourselves, well, well, I teach Sunday school. I'm a youth leader. I help usher. I give to the church. I go all the time. Certainly God's pretty happy with me, right? Like, man, God is pretty lucky to have me on my side. Do you see all the stuff that I do around here? And we may not say that, but that attitude can creep in. And think of just about your own life. When, when are you telling God, thank you for what he's done for you? Because we don't thank someone for what we think that we earn, right? I don't know about you. For me, we get paid here on the 15th, so I'll get a paycheck this week. I'm, I'm not going to write a thank you letter to someone who pays me for work that I have earned and done, right? You don't write your boss a thank you letter every time you get paid. Why? Because you have earned the paycheck. When you write a thank you letter, when someone has given you something unexpected that you didn't deserve, then you say thank you and you show gratitude towards them. If we are not expressing gratitude towards God because of the salvation he's given us, what it's saying is that in our hearts, we think we've earned it. We think that we deserve it. We think that God is just giving us what we rightfully deserve. And thankfulness pushes back against that idea of self-sufficiency and reminds us over and over again that we need to live a life entirely dependent upon God. In chapter 15, the scene shifts. We don't know how much longer it is. It just says after these things, but the, the scene shifts. It says this, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
the word of the Lord shows up. This is a, a common phrase in the prophetic books of the Old Testament, but actually the only time that this occurs here in the first five books of the Bible, that God himself is speaking and prophesying over Abram's life. And he, he gives him, right, I, I will make you very great. And Abram's like, yeah, God, but there's one problem. You said I would have kids. I got no kids. And I'm getting older, and I still don't have kids. He's like, what it's going to come down to is Eliezer, who is likely the son of two of his servants who have been traveling with him. He's like, it's going to go to somebody else. I mean, the, the promise for Abram's child and children, it continues to come into focus there when it says that, actually, Abram, this son will come from you. It will be your very own son. Literally, the translation is your son will come from your own loins, Abraham. This will be your biological son. And picture the scene. They're out in the desert. It's in the pitch of night. There's no air pollution or light pollution or anything. And God says, Abraham, look up. Look up at the stars and start counting. You're not going to get there because that's how many people. That's the nation, the offspring that will one day come from you. This amazing promise that God gave to Abram. In verse six, what was Abram's response? Is he believed, he trusted. Abraham had faith in the Lord. And because of his faith, God counted it to him or credited it to him as righteousness. The second truth that we see throughout all of scripture is that the promises of God call us to faith. The promises of God, just as Abram received this amazing promise from God, and what was the response that God wanted from him? It was to have faith, to believe, to trust in this God who made the promise to him. And it's the same for us today, that when God promises us, the response that he wants from us is one of faith. So you may not realize this. It seems so kind of out of just inconsequential, but Genesis 15 verse 6 is one of the foundational verses in all of scripture for one of the main themes of how God works out salvation. That, that there's this problem that because of sin, we are separated from God. We are unrighteous in biblical terms. God is pure and holy. We are unrighteous. So how can we be righteous to stand before a perfect and holy and righteous God? Well, how can we be made righteous? It's through faith. The doctrine of justification by faith, justification meaning we are legally declared righteous before God. How can we do it? Is it because we do enough stuff that we pray hard enough, that we go to church enough, that we read our Bible enough, that we do enough good deeds, kind things, we help the poor? No. How? Are we justified? It's by faith. See, this theme that Abram exemplifies of being justified, being made right before God, not because of works, but simply because of faith is picked up on by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 4, specifically this verse in verse 6, Romans chapter 4, it says this, starting at verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He then goes on in chapter four to talk about how this, this verse, Abraham being 
counted as righteous was before Abraham received the sign of circumcision. We'll get there in a few weeks. And in a Jewish mindset, circumcision is what set them apart as God's people. And he goes, no, 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 no. Because remember, Abraham was given God's righteousness and it was before circumcision was ever introduced. So it's not some physical act, some physical symbol that sets you apart and saves you. It was his faith. He then says, now remember this too that Abraham existed hundreds of years before the law was given. The law that was given to Moses and the people. And so Abram didn't have the Ten Commandments. Abram didn't have all these laws to live by. So how was he made right before God if he didn't have these things? He was made right because of one thing, that he had faith in God. It was his faith that saved him, not because he was part of the Jewish family, not because he obeyed the law. He was saved by his faith. And then Paul goes on to to kind of flesh this out, impact what it means for us. This is a, a longer passage, but bear with me. We'll get through it. Verse 16 says this in Romans chapter four. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, this is speaking of Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. But, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So notice what Paul does here in looking at this verse, Genesis 15, 6. He's saying Abraham was saved. He was declared righteous. Why? Because of his faith. And so what is the call for us who live on this side of history? He says, you look at Jesus. You look at what he did. He died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. What do you do? You believe and that's enough for salvation. He's saying it's not works. It's not being from a certain family or from a certain background. It's not how much you give, how often you go. How is one declared righteous before God? They have faith in Jesus and that's it. They believe that Jesus died. They believe that Jesus rose again. And that is how we too can be declared righteous. See, what, what place do works have in salvation? Works flow from salvation. They flow from the change that God has made in our hearts. But notice how clear the the Bible is to point out that we are not saved by works. We are saved by faith and that the good things that we do are an overflow of the change that God has already cultivated in us. And so the question for each of us this morning is what are we trusting in 
for salvation? Are we trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone? Are we trusting in our works, our prayers, our giving, our church attendance, anything else? Because if we trust in anything else other than Jesus, we won't get it. We are saved not by works so that no one can boast. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And so today, if you are here and you've been trying and you've been wanting that salvation, it's available. All you have to do is believe. All you have to believe believe is that Jesus died for our sin, rose from the dead, and we will be credited that righteousness just as Abraham, not because of his works, but because of his faith, had God's righteousness credited to him. The story continues, verse seven. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Seems like a random collection, but Abraham knew what he was talking about. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Yes, he literally means divide them. There's blood everywhere as the animals' carcasses are laying cut in half. Verse 11, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So what we have in this passage is what would have been their typical ceremony of covenant making. Now, in our Western culture, this sounds and looks totally bizarre, right? What would you have done if we just brought up three animals and started like cutting them in half? Like you probably would have pulled out your phones. You're like, this is going to go viral. This is some crazy stuff going on in here. Like, what are they doing? So in our culture, we live in a very written culture. And so if you want to enter into a formal agreement in our written culture now, what do you do? You sign your name, right? Because we're in a written culture. What do you do if it's really official? You have someone notarize it, right? So it's like double written down stamp that, yes, I will do this. They live in an oral culture. You didn't write stuff. You didn't sign. Your word was it. And so what, what did they take to make sure that their legal agreements were perfectly, yes, both parties are totally agreeing upon it. They did a covenant-making ceremony much like this. And so these animals were put, and they were cut in half and put side by side. Literally, the, in Hebrew, the translation, when it says to make a covenant, it literally says to cut a covenant. 
that this cutting of the animals was just a regular part of entering into a covenant agreement. Abram enters into this deep sleep and first God speaks in verses 12 to 16. And if you didn't catch it, if, if you don't know the Bible, what he's talking about there is he's talking about the people being enslaved in the land of Egypt and 400 years later being led out by Moses and that they will come back in and they will possess this land in which Abram is living. So God speaks to Abram and assures him. But then God acts in verse 17, that this fire pot and flaming torch pass beneath the pieces. Now, smoke and fire were a common image of God and how God's presence was seen throughout all of scripture. You, you, see, you see it here. You see it in the, when God's people are led out of Egypt. They're led by a pillar of fire at night. You see it even in the New Testament when the apostles started to, to speak in tongues and the Holy Spirit descended upon them. What did it look like? It looked like flames of fire descending upon men. So what does it mean that there's this, this fire pot and flaming torch? That means that God himself is there walking between the pieces. Now, what's shocking is not that these pieces are divided. What's shocking to them is that there's only one person who does it. Because see, in a normal covenant-making ceremony, if we were to make a covenant, we would divide these pieces up and then both of us would walk in between it. And what it says is, may it be to me, just like these animals, if I break this covenant, that I am bound by my life to do what I have told to you that I will do. But both parties walk in it because both parties are responsible. Only one party walks through and it's God. What God is saying is I'm making a covenant with you, Abraham, and I am holding myself accountable if I do not do what I have promised you to do. See, the third truth that we see throughout all of scripture is that the covenants of God show his faithfulness. The covenants of God show his faithfulness. The God holds himself accountable as the one who will carry out the covenant promises that he has made with Abraham. See, Abram asks this question in verse eight, because he, like us, is human. It's a question I think any of us could ask. God, how am I to know that I will possess this land, right? He's looking at his life. He's like, what assurance do I have? Give me, give me something, God. Give me some sense of assurance to hold on to. And God gives him the strongest thing possible, makes a covenant and says, I will keep it. Notice that there's no if statement after this, right? There's no, Abraham, I will do this if you do this. God says, no, I will do it. And that is that. I'm holding myself accountable to it. See, he wanted to assure Abraham and to give him assurance, what he did is gave him the most powerful picture of his own faithfulness, of God's faithfulness to Abraham, no matter what Abraham did. Abraham asks this question of assurance. And I think it's a question that we should and we should ask today is how can I know, as it even says here, how can I know for certain how can I know for certain that my sins are forgiven? How can I know for certain that what God says about me will actually happen if I believe in Jesus? Can we have assurance as Christians? Absolutely we can. And it's not an arrogant thing at all because our assurance doesn't depend upon us, but it depends upon God. 
See, too often we mistake our relationship with God based on the intensity of the feelings that we have in our faith. And if you've walked with God in any time, you'll experience both of these. There's seasons in life where worship is amazing. You can't wait to show up to church. The songs seem to speak to you. You open God's word on your own and it's like it comes to life and it's like God wrote the Bible just for you. And it's filled with such growth and such excitement and you're like, this is amazing. And then there's seasons that all of us, myself included, go to where you go to church and you're like, I like the song. I, I'm, it's just really hard to sing today. And you open up your Bible and you're like, I know I should do this. And you try and read and you're like, this, this is so hard. And you pray and it feels like it hits the ceiling and it doesn't go anywhere else. And what can easily happen and in seasons like that is we can think, oh, oh no, God has pushed me aside. God has forgotten about me. I, I've been abandoned by God. But see, our assurance isn't if we feel something or we don't feel something. Our assurance is based on the faithfulness of God. It's based on the faithfulness of God. Because get this, when you placed your faith in Jesus, the Bible says you entered into the new covenant with him. A new covenant relationship, just like God made with Abraham. And this covenant that you are now in was purchased with Jesus's own shed blood. His body is what was broken so that we could enter into it. And since salvation is purchased by God, we have assurance of salvation because our salvation depends upon his faithfulness, not on our actions. When we believe, when we believe and receive through faith the gift of what Jesus has given to us, we can walk in full assurance of salvation. Just as to Abraham, there was no you have this if you manage to do this. God doesn't say, when you have faith in me, I will forgive your sin if you go to church enough, if you do enough good things. No, there is no if. It's an unconditional when you believe this is what you have because you are now in a covenant relationship with God. And I don't know about you, but it's really easy to believe that in these great seasons where God seems to be speaking to us, but for a lot of us, today even, we may find ourselves in a dry season. I just want to remind you this morning, if you're in a dry season, that if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you can have full assurance of your faith, your salvation, even right there. Because your faith is not dictated on how you feel. Our faith is focused on the faithfulness of God. And God promises to you, that he who started a good work in you will complete it. Not maybe, not if you do enough, not if he feels like it. He will complete it when he starts it. So when we place our faith in Jesus, we can have full assurance of salvation, just as Abraham could because of this covenant that God made and said, I hold myself accountable to do it. God holds himself and he will be faithful to us. God, we do thank you for your faithfulness in each and every season of our life, in, in the seasons of abundance and prosperity and blessing, and in the seasons of desert and wandering. God, you are a faithful God to us, and we can rest assured the forgiveness of sin, the hope that we have, because we're depending on your faithfulness, not 
on ourselves. God, and I pray this morning for anyone here who never has placed their faith in what Jesus has done for them. Maybe they've been trying the religious thing out. They've been trying to do enough good stuff. They've been trying to pray. They've been trying to do all these things. God, may today be the day of salvation as right now, as we cry out to you, say we believe in you and you alone, that you died for our sins and you rose again from the dead. We thank you for your promise that when we place our faith in you, you credit it to us as righteousness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.